the one and only Alistair Campbell. Thank you so much for coming on Out of Your League. Uh, we've been waiting a long time to get you, uh, so we really appreciate your time, Alistair. Uh, look, you've had such a fascinating life, such a fascinating life, and, and completely away from your political career. You were, I was reading, a, a busker at one stage. I want to hear about that. You were a roulette dealer in Shaftesbury Avenue. You've written just the 16 books as well. You're a big Burnley Seven, fan. 17, uh, which 17, we'll get on to. 17. 17? Right. 17. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're a Burnley supporter, which, which I want to talk to you about, that, that sort of dynamic with Sean Dyche and, and how you got following them. But more importantly, from our point of view, um, you grew up in Keithley. So you're a Yorkshire boy, went to Bradford Grammar. You went regularly as a kid to watch the Cougars play as a kid. Cougars, what were you yeah. back then? Well, the... The, the Cougars stayed Lorcombe Lane. It wasn't, it was, we were at the top of the town. They were down the bottoms. It was, and every time I went to, I only went to Bradford Grammar for a term because we had to move away from Yorkshire after my dad had an accident. But I, um, yeah, it was like the weekends were sort of, you know, every weekend was Burnley and, and the Cougars, if we could get there. And uh, I think that, that my, I've got to be honest, my, the strongest memory I've ever had of being at, the, at Lorcombe Lane well, there's two really. One was an absolutely extraordinary fight against. I think I think they were playing Oldham, but I, I could be wrong about that. But but there was like a a brawl that was it was so dramatic and so mesmerising. You know that thing when football commentators, whenever there's a scuffle and the commentators say, oh, this is the last thing you want to see on a football pitch. And I can remember just watching thinking, this is absolutely brilliant. You just see these <laughs> big blokes just absolutely. And then, of course, they carried on. And then I'll, I'll never forget at the end, them sort of hugging each other and walking off together. And so that's the first memory. The second memory is of my dad was a vet, okay, that's an important right. fact in this story. That was a vet. And his best mate uh, was a doctor called Paddy Laughlin. And one day, Paddy, uh, he, Paddy used to be the guy, by the way, who got us into the game because one of his sidelines, he was the team doctor. Okay, so he did, he did match day work for, for the Cougars. And he and my dad um, went out one night before a game and they had too much to drink, I think. And Paddy phoned my dad in the morning and said, Donald, uh, I've, I can't, you're going to have to do me a favour. I can't do the match today. I'm absolutely wrecked. And my dad said, but Paddy, I'm a vet. He says, yeah, yeah, but you don't need to tell him that. Just, <laughs> you'll be fine. You'll, you'll be Nobody fine. will know. <laughs> a lot of similarities, actually. Well, and he, 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 and he, and I remember once another game we went to, and some bloke had his part of his ear bitten off, <laughs> <laughs> and so there was Paddy out there stitching, he's trying to stitch his ear up, and uh, but no, I think the, I, do you know what? It's really funny you mentioned Burnley. I, my fanaticism for Burnley grew after we left Yorkshire. I'd always been. A regular went to home games very, and I think it's a bit the same with rugby league, you know, because I, 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 rugby league and cricket. I used to watch a lot of cricket as well, but I became much more interested after we left, and I think that's because, you know, I grew up in the in we left Yorkshire when I was eleven, moved to Leicester, which I didn't, I didn't really like very much, and then ever since then went to university, well, lived did my busking my busking career. 
Uh, and then since then, <laughs> come on, tell us about years, that. Tell us about the busking career. About the busking. Well, again, it was to do with when we were growing up. We were my dad was from the Hebrides, mum was from Ayrshire. It was a very, very Scottish upbringing. Uh, I've always supported Burnley and Scotland, and uh, you know Scotland's always been a big part of my life. And, and I learned the black the bagpipes when I was a kid, and I did languages at university. And when uh, I did my year abroad, I was I, I absolutely I've had a lot of strokes of luck in my life. But I was given, you know, you get sent to a school, you can be sent anywhere in France, and I was sent to this school in Nice, just down by the port, and it was absolutely one of the best years of my life footloose fancy free single in nice and it was and the work was about 12 hours a week max and the rest of the time we could do what you want anyway my mum and dad i don't think they'd ever been abroad you know um my dad might have been abroad for his work but i know my mum had to get a passport and they came down they came down to see me and i said to my dad listen just bring the bring the pipes down just to give me something you know bring my pipes down because when i when i'd gone down there i just traveled very light you know so anyway he brought the pipes down and a couple of weeks after the left i went i thought well i can't play in the flat i can't play in the town some of the kids will see me so i went up to this little village about five miles out of nice place called Ez, and i just found this little quiet car park with nobody around and i just i blew the pipes up tuned them and i started playing and with it, I'm, I kid you not, within about 10 minutes, a crowd of about 20 or 30 had gathered around and they started throwing money in the box. And I thought, this, I thought, this is interesting. <laughs> so that night, I went to the main pedestrian precinct in Nice and I stood there and I put my box down and I started playing. And I, I promise you, I, I was never short of money. And I had, so then for the rest of the time I was there, that's what I did. I busked and went all over Europe playing my backbite. Amazing, amazing. Look, I, I know you, you tweeted, Alistair, because I saw it after the grand final. So I know you were watching that one, which is an incredible game, wasn't it? At the end of last season, Wigan Saints um, up at Hull. But how much rugby league then do, do you absorb and do you have time for these days? Oh, a fair bit. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of pretty obsessive sports watcher. Um, and, you know, I got involved with the, the, if the, if the Keithley Cougars were in the Super League, that would be my team. Right. But they're not. And, <laughs> and, I, and I, yeah. I can't quite see the pathway at this. Uh, right it's, now. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Alistair, unless you, unless you could have investment in. Yeah, but hold on a minute. You never, said, you never said Burnley would have got into Europe 10 years ago, but we did. So things can happen. But while Keithley yeah, Cougars yeah. are not in the Super League, I got in. I got invited out of the blue um, by Carl at Warrington Wolves to go and spend some time with Warrington Wolves. It was after I wrote, I wrote a book called Winners, um, and Carl Fitzpatrick read it, and he said that Tony Smith had read it, and he was really interested in some of the stuff that I said in there. You know, he'd like me to go up and have a chat with the team and just sort of, you know, knock a few ideas around. And, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was like, it was only a day spent, you know, watching them train, talking to them. Uh, then we had a session talking about the book and talking about winning mindsets and all this sort of stuff. And ever since then, I've kind of, I've, I've followed, you know, the wolves in terms of that's, that's who I'll, I'll make a point of watching. Um, uh, and, 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 but if there's a, you know, if there's a big game on, um, I'll, and, and I'm at home, I'll watch it kind of pretty, 
pretty religiously. I think they, I do think it's one of the best sports in the world. I really do think that. I went to Australia last year and went to see a couple of games as well. Just we just had a little bit of spare time. That was that was really interesting as well. Went to see Manly, um, and they were Oval. Eh? Do you go to Brookvale Oval on the Northern Beaches? Yeah, that's was what it, it was, Manly's yeah. ground. And, yeah, and, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and what what was do you know what was really strange about it? I don't know whether this it it it, it didn't feel like um, you know the, the Super League grounds now that are all you know they're pretty modern and and all that stuff. This felt there were quite a lot of people sitting on grass, um, a lot of people moving around during the game, a lot of chatting up going on. A lot of a lot of young girls there watching the game and 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 young blokes just going around. It was like a sort of, it was like a really big social scene, uh, very very different. And but really really really, I mean the, you know the quality. I do, I do think watching, the Aussies at it is is something else. And and I think the, the other thing that's interesting about being in Australia is, you know, when you're reading the papers and the extent to which, rugby league is like the sport. Uh, you know, I think that's that's you, you're always struck by that. So yeah, I, wa- I watch a fair bit, and um, and I, I I I always I just think it, I think it's faster than rugby union. I think it's I think it's more fluid. I think there are I, I can't pretend that I understand everything that's going on. Um, I, I always get confused. I really get you guys going to have to help me with this. Why do they still call these guys props? Why do you still history? It's a great question. Why do you no still have hookers when nobody's hooking? I don't understand it. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point, well made. We should just we should have one generic position, I think, in rugby league, rather than the specificity of everyone having a different job. I think maybe Alistair's onto something. We'll just call them all one one specific position. Well, no, you've got you've got players. You've got players who are going to be out wide. You've got players who are going to be the ones that are going to do the big runs, take the bit hit, take the big hits. But I just think it's really confusing when you you, you sort of because I mean the scrum thing is really really interesting. I do I do honestly think I can remember, you know when it when I was growing up and Eddie Waring was like you know and rugby league was like the only sport really that got lots of telly coverage, and um, you know he'd do his you'd see them going into the scrums and like nothing happening, and then eventually you know they get rid of them, and now you see rugby union and the amount of time that gets lost to the game in the difficulty that they're having in, you know, setting, binding, up, down, up, down, up, down. And it's 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 like and what it and what it means as well is that you used to have guys in rugby league who were props and they were like the rugby union props in terms of they were the biggest and they weren't always the quickest, but they were, you know, rock hard. Um, but now they've all got to be unbelievably athletic. And that was the other thing that struck me when that day that I spent with with the Wolves was just watching them train, just how unbelievably athletic they are. You know, yeah. for big. I, I just lo- I lo- I just love the idea, Wilco, of uh, of two of the most unlikely Warrington Wolves fans and Stuart Pearce and Alistair Campbell watching maybe Warrington <sighs> against Saints and Chris Hill runs over you and they're screaming "fuck off, Wilkin." I just, that's the lovely <laughs> imagery that's playing around in my head. Yeah, no, perfect. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love yeah, to well, see, I've, uh, I've, been up, I've been up to Warrington and um, really nice stadium. Um, nice people. And, uh, you know, 
I went to, there, there, it was one of those days when they had, uh, actually Keithley were playing as well. One of those days when there was about, you know, there were several matches being played on the same day. Uh, and um, I, I just I just think it's, uh, I, th- I think it's a hugely underestimated sport. And I've, the, the other thing I've never mm. fully understood is why it's never really taken off in the South. I know, you know, the, there's, all, there's been pretty relentless attempts to get the whole London team thing going. And I've never quite understood why it's never taken off because, you know, I think I think people who do get into it, wherever they're from, I didn't know Stuart with Pierce was a Warrington fan, um, but anybody who does get into it, I, th- I think just it's just one of the best sports there is. Yeah. On, the, on that, actually, you know, Alistair, when I knew you were coming on, I, I was thinking about, about rugby league and it actually, it made me draw a comparison with the Labour Party um, in its history and your involvement in the Labour Party in particular, because obviously you were hugely influential in, in, in the Tony Blair era, the New Labour, New Britain sort of movement. But you, I've heard you speak about the Labour Party prior to that, like this, um, you know, archaic, behind the times sort of vision of the past that was changing under people's feet. And and you ask why rugby league hasn't grown, and I think ultimately it's probably because we spent too much time in the, in the past, dwelling on the history of the game. But what we need, Alistair, is is the new Labour, the new Britain. We need the new movement. We need something, <laughs> somebody to gather behind. Listen, listen mate. So, listen, mate. The country needs that first. Hey, we'll start with. We could start with rugby league. We start with rugby league as a tester. We'll start with rugby league and we'll work up to the country. That's that's how. Okay. Well, listen, I think I think I think rugby league. It's look, you you guys live and breathe it. You know far better than I do. But it feels to me like a very modern sport at the moment. Is that wrong? No, the way it, it's it played is. certainly it, is, yeah. I think the, the way it's advanced and the athletes that play are, are probably in the sports science that goes along with it is, is at the forefront of, of, of any sport, to be honest. I think sometimes the way it's packaged and presented and the branding that goes behind it isn't always you know, going alongside that. But it's a tough okay. question, to be honest. Yeah. And and I would say behind the scenes, Alistair, there's there's a lot of complicated structures like grassroots rugby, the governing body, the Super League clubs, the championship clubs, amateur junior clubs, and all of that is quite fractious. Like there's not like mm. a unified a unified sort of vision for how where the game should go and whether we expand or contract, whether you know whether we we simplify it, shorten the game. There's so yeah, much you see, dissent in opinion. And that's where I was yeah. to, one of my questions that I wanted to ask you is how important is clarity of messaging in your world, in, in the communications world? Oh, absolutely fundamental. And, and I think it is in any world, to be honest. And you see, it's really interesting what you guys have just said, because I, look, I went to, I, I did a piece for the Times a few years ago up at the, at the Cougars. And that's, the, I'm, you know, I'm ashamed to say that's the last time I've been. And I've I've had this involvement on and off for a few years now with with Warrington Wolves. But you know my relationship with rugby league is I I see the best of it on the telly, and then when I go to when I go to you know somewhere like Sydney, I go and you know watch a couple of matches. But you guys who are absolutely in it, what you've just said is incredibly interesting. And actually, if you were going to do your new Labour, new Brit, new rugby league thing, that's where you'd start. 
because do you know one of the reasons I think that this could be famous last words, but I don't think England football team will ever win a major trophy. Okay, now I could be proved wrong by that by the by the time this goes out, but I'll <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you why I don't think that because I don't think we I don't think they've ever had strategic alignment in the game, whereas I think when you go to Germany. France, to a lesser extent, Spain, Italy, these countries, they've got far greater strategic alignment between the body running the national team, the body running the league and the body running the grassroots. And they, even though they're all, they can be separate, they don't all have to be the same. But what you've got in England, you've got a body that's running the national team and grassroots, the FA, and you've got the Premier League, which is where all the power is. And the Premier League, whose interests are in having the best TV ratings in the world. How do you do that? You get the best players in the world. How do you do that? You pay them the most money. How do you get the money? You get the most money for your TV. And it's like a kind of circle that goes round like that. And then you wonder why there are, well, actually, to be fair, England have got some very good players at the moment, but there's not many of them would get into those the teams of those countries that I mentioned. So, and, and I think if, you, if rugby league was to, if you were to set, if rugby league was to set itself an objective in, in our country, it would be to become the greatest rugby league country in the world. That's not unrealistic. It's bold. Australia at the moment, you'd have to say that's what they are. So you, that's how you'd then frame everything around that. Well, how do we do that? Well, you've got to get the elite right. How do you get the elite right? You've got to get the grassroots right. How do you do that? You can't do that successfully unless you're doing those two parts of it are working working together. So that's interesting what you said there. That 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 says to me, maybe a bit like the Premier League, actually, that the top end makes the sport look a lot better than it is. I'll tell you what, boys, there's, a, there's an opening, isn't there? There's a free... Free position at the top of Super League at the moment with the chief exec in waiting, Alistair Campbell. I can see it. I can see it happening. We tried to get Eddie Hearn to buy Super League on, on the podcast before. I can see Campbell pulling pulling it all back what, together. What, what, has Eddie Hearn done the podcast? Yeah. At the very, very beginning, when we um, we did it out of a basement about three years ago on, on the outskirts of Manchester. And um, right. through Will's contact, through managed Whereas to get now on the outskirts of St. Helens, are you? That's the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in my bedroom on <laughs> But um yeah, we had a good little chat with him actually for twenty minutes because he um he'd done a, an interview in the press the week previously saying that he did have a, a vested interest in getting involved with rugby league and I remember that. Yeah, he pop yeah. Mm. Good few years. Well ago. look what his dad did, Alistair, with you know, with, with darts and snooker and you know, he he with no sort of personal connection to the sport was just looking at Thinking it was it was underachieving and it was uh, it was underrated and that he could he could have turned it around but it kind of came to nothing in the end. Yeah, fair enough. I inter- I do because one of my I, I do these interviews for GQ and I interviewed Eddie Hearn a, a, a couple of years ago. Now we we talked a little bit about that because um, mm. his you know what they've done to darts and snooker and you know he's also obviously closely involved in boxing as well. Yeah, now. Um, yeah they they they've understood. I mean, if you'd have said if you'd ever have said to me that darts would become this not just a spectator sport but like that massive event i can remember every christmas without fail my two sons at some point around just around about christmas will say dad can you get us tickets for the ali pali 
<laughs> it's like you know, you're obsessed with it, and it's that that's because he's so maybe he could do stuff like that. I like the other one, you know, the other sport that I mentioned, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of cricket and I used to go to you know watch Yorkshire and go to test matches at Headingley and stuff like that. And you know, I can remember when the 40 over 50 over thing all that came in and traditionalists being very kind of snooty about it, but you look where it is now and the the success of stuff like the big bash. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, w- I definitely wouldn't look down on people, people like Eddie Hearn, whether it's him or somebody else coming in and saying, look, there may be ways of, 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 of livening things up a bit. And the other thing is, I, I, I also think the way that rugby league is, you know, the, there's this huge debate going on in football at the moment about VAR and whether it works and the Euros did it better and blah, blah, blah. Rugby league, I mean, it's, it, it's really is part of the spectacle and the, They've done it. I think they've done it really well. The fact you can be in the stadium and you can see exactly what the guy's seeing as he's trying to make a judgment, and exactly the same as the TV viewers seeing it as well. So I think that that's an innovation. These innovations can happen. Yeah. Have I got the job Look, yet? Uh, before we get on and talk a, a, a little bit, yeah, about got politics, it. which I want to do just 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 a tiny bit. You've definitely got the job. Um, yeah, you mentioned Burnley there as well. Is are you as much of a of a, a Burnley fan as Tony Blair was a Newcastle supporter? And where did all that come from? Because didn't didn't Tony Blair once claim to have watched Jackie Milburn play and then realised no, that he was about it, thirty years too young? It, he did not. It is the guy who wrote that. <laughs> this is how this is how stuff happens, right? The guy who wrote that <laughs> there we story, go. <laughs> no, the guy who wrote that story has admitted, right? He's admitted that yeah. it wasn't true. That he didn't say it, right? right? <laughs> and yet, still, any time I get asked about Tony Blair Paul, he said he was on the Gallagher end when he was, you know, minus fifteen. <laughs> um, no, I'm a, listen. I'm a bigger Burnley fan than than most Burnley fans are Burnley fans, and I'm a bigger Burnley fan than most people are any fans because I'm I'm ludicrously fanatical. I worked out the other day. I've been to eighty-seven away grounds as a Burnley fan. Have you? Quite a wow. lot. Yeah. Um, that's part, you know, it tells a lot about our kind of up and down trajectory. No, Tony is Tony likes football. He watches quite a lot of football. But, you know, even now he's out of office because he's still got quite a lot of security around him. It's such a palaver when he goes to any event now. Um, so, look, he's, uh, he's, 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 uh, he does watch football. But, no, I don't think he'd ever claim to be as big a Newcastle fan as I'm a Burnley fan. You always have that, don't you, in, in politics, where it's just like, oh, look, David Cameron just says a, a Villa support. It, it seems to me that it just sort of, whether it's spin doctors or whatever, whether it's just them and it's sometimes badly advised, where they just, it, oh, it'll make you more approachable, it'll make you more human. Yeah, but, it make you more... but it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's mm. total nonsense. I mean, I'll tell you who, do you remember Tony Banks? He used to be our, he was sports minister for a yeah. while. And yeah. the thing about Tony, so he was MP, he was the MP for West Ham, right? Mm. And he was a massive Chelsea fan all his life. And mm. you think that was really difficult, right? But he never, <laughs> ever, ever hid it. He never hid it. And I think, yeah. I think far worse would, he, would have been if he had gone along to West Ham, you know, local party selection meeting and said, you know, well, I've been a Chelsea fan, but West Ham's always been my second team and I'm going to now be a West Hammer. He never did that. Yeah. He used to go yeah, on about... People read through that bollocks. Of course they do. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, it's like you know the, the thing with David Cameron. You know what do people know about that? Is that he, he couldn't remember if he supported West Ham or Aston Villa. He just knew they played in Claret and Blue. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> sin of maybe that. Burnley. 
Exactly. Yeah. Or Scunthorpe. Don't forget Scunthorpe. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> Look, Alistair, do, do, I wanted to ask you this. Let's move on to politics a little bit. Do, do you ever go to a dinner party and not get onto or be dragged into politics? No, probably not. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the best things about COVID is that there haven't been any dinner parties to go to. Is <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind I don't mind going out for dinner with people I want to go out for dinner with, but <laughs> those sort of the idea, you know, some people just love to have bringing sort of different pairings together and all that. So I can't be bothered yeah. with that. Um, but no, generally, generally, we we uh, it's very rare to have conversations that aren't about politics. Very rare. Mm. And of course, at home, you know, because <clears throat> with with Fiona, I mean, every morning it's like you know <laughs> we're both just at the moment we just wake up in a complete rage about state of the country, state of the world, state of the government. Um, yeah, just it does my head in. You know, yeah, for those who don't know, I think most of the people do listening to this. But of course, you were, you know, Tony Blair's director of communications uh, until two thousand and three. When you when you look when you look back on those days, what kind of emotions do you feel when you look back on them? Uh, I mean, I, I find it hard to divorce from what's going on now. So, for example, if you go back to when we started out. One of our big things was Northern Ireland, right? Now we, you know, we did some pretty amazing stuff there, and it's now seems to me it's all put at risk by this Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol and Johnson just being a kind of, you know, a, sorry, I'll can I swear or not? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, say doing, fuck shit and bugger, being who and what he is, and not absolutely not giving a shit and just lying his head off about the whole thing. Mm. Or then I look at stuff that's happening in. You know, take Europe, you know, one of our big things is to try to cement Britain as a, you know, major player within the European Union. Now we're out of the European Union. So I look back, I mean, I've written eight, eight, eight of the 17 books in my diaries and I look back at them and I think, you know, we did a lot and a lot of it was good. And I feel very proud of the part that I played in that. But then I, the other part of me says, but we, you know, a lot of it's been picked up, been picked apart already. Um, and that sort of, you know, I find that I find that quite difficult. I mean, I don't. I tell you I what, I don't. Incredibly frustrating to have built oh, something that, and, and be such a fundamental part of something that w was really great, and you know, um, made a lot of peace over in Ireland, and, and been part of something bigger than than Britain as in, in Europe. It must be incredibly frustrating to see it. To see, see it, now. it. It is. It is, and it's also it's doubly frustrating because. You know, the other thing that's happened, I remember Brendan Foster. He wants, Brendan's a really good mate of mine, and he, he, he phoned me up about, it was when, it was just before the, the, 20, uh, the Ed Miliband election against David Cameron. And he said, every time I listen to Ed, it's like he wants to, he wants to distance himself from everything you guys did. <laughs> he said, it's like, it's like, it's like the Man United fans of today saying they don't want anything to do with Alex Ferguson. You know, you won three elections. You're the only Labour Party that's ever won three elections in a row. Nobody's ever done more than two, you know, nobody's ever done two full terms before. And yet they're, they're, they sort of don't want you on the pitch. And it's like, and there is, you know, there, there is something a bit mad about it. So that's doubly frustrating as well. I look at the Labour Party and I get frustrated. I look at the government and I get angry. Um, and I really worry about where it's going. I think that whatever 
people want to say about about Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and John Prescott and all the others who were involved in that government, I think there were, you know, we had a really good, very varied, very big team of strong characters, and we got a lot done. And I look at I look at both main parties now, and I just think, how have we gone from that to this? It just, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's incredibly frustrating. How, and you know, you're very strongly attached with that that period of your life, Alistair. Is there any ever, you know, that particularly the, the sort of Blair era of your life? It, it, you know, is is that frustrating that, that that that's a really strong attachment, or is it just something that you're proud of? Uh, no, I don't feel frustrated by it. I mean, look, I I, I look, it, it can be <clears throat> there's, there's there's stuff that's attached to it that can be very annoying. I mean, there's not a single day, literally not a single day, that there won't be somebody on Twitter calling me a war criminal. Whatever you do in relation to anything good about Tony, they'll say, "What about Iraq?" Uh, any, you know, it's like any any time I I tread on Twitter. I mean, I laugh about it now because I think it is quite funny. If ever I'm trending on Twitter, you'll get a load of people saying, "Oh, he was trending. I thought he was dead." Hashtag hopes let down another day, kind of thing. And you, you <laughs> that, but at the same at the same time, what I'd say is, well, two things I'd say. One is. It's not everybody who gets the chance to be part of something like that. Um, and secondly, a lot of the stuff that I do now, even if it's not related to politics, I've got enough awareness and humility to know that that is why I do get asked to do a lot of things. If you were asked, if you were, um, you know, there's one thing, I don't know if you know this, but one thing that I've done in the past, right? that I mention every single day, and I have done since it happened. Now, guess what it is? There's one thing I've done in my life that I mention to somebody every single day. I'll tell you what, it's the fact that I, that I played football with Diego Maradona at Old Trafford in front of 72,000 people. I say that every time. Now, the thing is, that would never have happened. The reason I got asked to play in that soccer aid was because... <laughs> They knew who I was, and they wanted somebody that the England... I was playing for the rest of the world. They wanted somebody that the, the England fans could boo, and I'm the man, right? <laughs> and, but that, so and if, if I take you through to that room there, there's a, there's a huge picture of me and day to day. In my office at home, there's a picture of me and Mandela. There's one of Bill Clinton, uh, but the only person who's got more than one is Diego Maradona. There's one of Pele as well. I play with Pele, but I don't talk about that as much because I'm a Maradona man. <laughs> Some Did big, you big, big when, names. Big names. When yeah. you mentioned um, social media there, Alistair, I know you know some of your books you've said a lot of people think you're a wanker. You also say that when you walk down the street, you know, you very rarely get any kind of face-to-face physical abuse, which when you've been that through that time that you mentioned of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and, and everyone's got that opinion on social media, Twitter and Alistair Campbell go hand in hand they are made for each other but obviously when you were doing your thing it wasn't it wasn't a thing twitter i mean how different would life have been with social media around in in the the sort of early noughties for you it's it's hard to answer that i don't i honestly don't know um i don't think i i think that there's a bit in the book on winners where i'm talking to uh to arsene wenger about this whole thing about dealing with the media <clears throat> and he he said this thing to me that's really really interesting he said that the, all the pressures 
of the modern age are to be tactical. You know, somebody says something on the phone, somebody tweets, somebody puts out a statement, whatever. He says it's, it makes it more important to be strategic. Now, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that we would have stayed on a strategic course, even with all the noise that's going, because you get noise anyway. I think one of the hardest things in um, for these a lot of these modern sports guys. Remember, I talked to this, <clears throat> I talked about this on the day that I spent with the Wolves guys. Is that mm. I mean, obviously they don't get it like you know Harry Kane at the moment, or you know the Ronaldo and these kind of massive global names in football. But you know they get it. They get grief and they get people saying they were crap and they get people, and it's. I, I, I really think it's important that the maybe this is another pitch for the job. <laughs> I don't want it, by the way. Um, that the, 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 the maybe think that I think they should be educating these players to to understand this stuff. Because look, it's not true that I don't get any. I have had physical stuff in the street, and I have had abuse and and what have you. It does. It happens a fraction of the time that you'd think if you were looking at social media. And everybody, I think, would say the same on that. But at the same time, if you, why do we think that a kid who's, say, 16, 17, who suddenly becomes a, a successful sportsman or sportswoman, and, they, and, and, and they're suddenly getting all this abuse, why do we just automatically assume that they're going to be able to deal with that in, a, in an okay way? They might not. And that's going to affect them badly in terms of how they play. So I think actually educating people to understand that, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It only matters if it's your mum who's saying it, or if it's your siblings, or it's your best mate, or it's your boss, or it's your teammates. If any of them are saying you're a wanker, then you've got a problem. You should take it seriously. If some guy who it, it's not, it's not. Look, I mean, I, I'm as bad as this. Anybody, I can watch the. T I, actually, I try to be positive. I try to <clears throat> never say anything bad about anything to do with Burnley. Uh, if I'm watching a football match, say, between, I don't know, France and Portugal, I'll tend to only... I don't know why we think it even matters that we tweet what we think and what oh, what a goal, what an amazing thing, you know, pray for Ericsson, whatever it might be. We're all doing that, right? I Why, does, why do we allow ourselves to be upset by the view of some kid who's probably sitting in his mum's, you know, basement on a sofa in his underpants watching the football... And he says, Marcus Rashford, shit. You know, <laughs> what, what does he know? What, what right do any of us have to question the coaches when it comes to team selection? When we don't, we don't know the players. We don't know how they're trained. We don't know whether, you know, one of them's fallen out with, the, with his mate who he normally, you know, is meant to be passing the ball to. But isn't that amazing, Alistair, that that guy that you've described there, he can then gauge a reaction from from Marcus Rashford. There is a chance that Marcus Rashford could see that. And that guy in that basement has has that power and has that effect on someone. Yeah, but that's why uh, I interviewed Harry Kane recently for the Evening Standard just before the Euros. And he, and, and I, you know, because uh, I, I, I said to him that I, I, I genuinely, and I, I'm pretty sure this is true. You never know, because sometimes you you maybe put a mask on and you, you persuade yourself of things. But I... I genuinely don't care what somebody I don't know says about me. I really don't care. It's of no interest to me at all. It will be of interest if they say something insightful. And sometimes people do. Sometimes people say insightful things. But with the people who just abuse you, 
utterly pointless letting them get to you. And Harry Kane was interesting. He said he never reads the papers. Um, he's on social media because he's a big part now of who he is and his profile. He's got 10 million Instagram followers or Twitter followers. I can't remember which it is. He makes money out of that. He has, he has causes that he believes in and he uses it for that. But, you know, he'll be getting he'll be getting a lot of grief. I thought, you know, I, when it could, sorry to be so confused in my sporting allegiances, but I'm a massive Scotland <laughs> fan when it comes to football. And I don't I don't know if you saw that interview that Stephen O'Donnell did um, after the the second game when he played really really well. He got loads of grief. Yeah. After the Czech Republic game, that he was brilliant against England, and the same people who were saying you're fucking useless. Steve Clark, why does he keep picking his mate from Kilmarnock? He's fucking useless. Nathan Patterson's a hundred times better, you know. And then suddenly he's he's absolutely brilliant. And O'Donnell did a really, really good interview. He said, Yeah, it did get to me. It did get to me. But what he said, you know what got me through it? It was the fact that the players kept telling me, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. The papers don't know what they're talking about, the fans don't know what they're talking about. You know, as long as the manager believes in you, as long as we believe in you. You know, and that's 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 what matters. And and I, I find people are just too willing to be sort of let themselves get crucified by other people. Yeah, O'Donnell was also brilliant as well because in after that match, he uh, he was asked about Jack Grealish because he had Jack Grealish in his back pocket, didn't he? When Grealish came oh, yeah. on after like sixty minutes, and, he kicked and John it, he McGinn, kicked who's his Villa teammate, had told him basically right. the way to get into Jack Grealish's head is not to mug him, him off and tell him he's shit and. Whatever. Flatter him. Tell him how good looking he is and how much he loves his calves. And that just absolutely pickled his head for about 20 minutes. <laughs> that that would have happened with John Wilkin as well, I reckon. You would have been a bit of that, John. But that's the, that's the other thing about... That's the other thing about... I mean, you, you're asking earlier about Sean Dyche. I do have a very good relationship with him. But it, it, it basically... He says to me, virtually every time we're together, he will say, when I start to talk about football and, you know... Well, what about Vid? Why haven't you been picking Vidra a bit more? And he said, he'll just say, listen, <laughs> I know fuck all about politics. You know fuck all about football. Let's just keep it like that. It's not that you know nothing, right? But you don't know. I can remember once watching a game. Burnley were playing Arsenal in the Cup. We were still in the Championship, I think. And we were, play, we were playing Arsenal at home. And Alex Ferguson wanted to come to the game, uh, partly to because he, you know, he's obsessed with football, but also because just to, to look at Arsenal and see which players they were playing and what have you. And I was sitting next to him in, in the director's box at Burnley. And I don't know if you, you guys have ever watched a game with somebody who really, really, really understands the game, right? And he was saying, he was saying things like, uh, there, was, there was a guy... He actually ended up going on loan to us, a guy called Randall. He's playing for Arsenal. And Fergie just sort of goes, we'll take him off in five minutes. <laughs> five minutes later, he gets subbed. You know, then about 10 minutes later, he's going to go, he's going to go through at the back in a minute. Or, you know, he's going to do something at a free kick. With it. And it's like, they're watching a different game. They're watching a different game to the ones that, that, that we watch. Alice, I want to ask you about, because um, I, I know during that sort of number 10 time for you, shortly after that, you said that you you lost 
um, a lot of respect for the media. Your respect for politics rose, but for the media, it, it fell. We, on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, we, we, ha- we had a podcast talking specifically about, you know, sports media and their relationship with players, coaches and clubs these days. You know, I've been in the media my whole working life since I was 17, worked for Kelvin McKenzie, worked for the BBC. These two guys have obviously played professional sport their, their whole lives. So, you know, we, we've got a, a, a view on it. Um, you know, and things that came up in that conversation were just like the, the absolutely uh, sort of irrelevance now of the press conference and the fact you get nothing out of it and you get these cliched questions and these settings have been happening since the 80s, really, and we've done nothing about it. But what do you make of, you know, as a media man, the sports media's relationship with with players, coaches and clubs from, from a football, from a rugby league point of view? Uh, I think it's a big question, though. I think it's, I think it's complicated. Um, you know, the, I thought it was really interesting, the, the, the Paris Open, Osaka, the Japanese tennis player, when she, you know, refused to do the press conference, to which she's contractually obliged, and she gave, I thought, a very good reason. Um, and then... You know, the authorities, their response was, you know, you've got to do them and you won't play in the Grand Slams unless you do them. Rather than, I think a far more mature response would have been, well, actually, do people care about what she does at the press conference or don't want to see her play in tournaments? And, you know, I had an experience of this because, you know, I went on the the Lions yeah. Tour of 2005 when Clive Woodward asked me to go and do the, the, the media and the comms on that. And I really enjoyed it, but I said to Clive right at the start, the media will not let this work. They won't let it work. Um, and I'm not saying they they cared that much, but they made me a story because I, I knew that they would. And it meant I couldn't really do that. Do you know what? That was when I realised I could never do another communications job again, not in the way that I'd done it before, because I was I was being covered as a story in a way that, you know, helped them, but it didn't help me and it didn't help the team. And but what was really interesting was I remember on the plane out, it was May the 25th. It was the day that Liverpool uh, had that amazing win in Istanbul. And the reason I remember it was May the 25th is because that's my birthday and it's Johnny Wilkinson's birthday. And I was having this chat with Johnny Johnny Wilkinson on the plane out. And it was a a really, really interesting conversation about how he trained, how he prepared, his mindset, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, he said to me, he said, by the way, um, look, I know he's a, he's a really nice guy, I really liked him, but he said, I know there's a lot of interest in me when we get there. I know that, like, you know, the media see me differently and all that, but if you're organising press conferences and stuff like that, I, I, don't like, I don't like being put in the front row. If there's a big, if we're all, don't put me in the front row. Um, I don't want to be seen as different to the rest, right? I, th- I thought that was just really, really, and to have that, and that just said to me, he doesn't want to be, he knows he's got to do stuff, but he doesn't want to be pushed out there. And then John Hayes was the, an Irish guy, and he and he, he came up to me and says, by the way, just just so as you know, I fucking hate talking to journalists. Uh, now, I think that's I think that's fair enough. I don't see why they should have to do stuff. Some players are good at it. Some players like doing it. I also think that the I think the man of the match thing is. I remember Matt Dawson, uh, the last game of the tour. The tour was a failure in that we lost all the tests. But the last non-test match, I think it was against Auckland, and Matt Dawson was man of the match. And uh, so I went up to him and I said, "Oh, Sky wants to do you as your man of the match. Can you do the interview? Tell him to fuck off." I'm not, you know, those people, all they do is slag us off. And I could, 
I can remember him sort of saying, you know, I'd never do that. <laughs> you know, with these players, the big players, they know what it's like, you know. And now what's he doing? He's a um, But, you know, I, I get that. And I think that's the thing about Man of the Match. Is the other thing I, I think I won't say it is there's, there's a couple of the Burnley players who I, I, it's so obvious to me they hate doing it. Don't make them. Don't make them. Don't make them do the match thing, you know. Um, so I, th- I think that's another thing, you know, if, if you were getting Eddie Hernan to modernise the game, like, who are the best communicators? Who are the ones who enjoy it? Who are the ones who make you feel good talking when they're talking about the sport? Use them. And, and, and obviously, I think people accept that being a coach now and being a captain, that is part of the job. They have to be out there you know, promoting themselves, promoting their teams, promoting the sport. But don't make everybody do it. Alistair, look, look, so many big questions just because we could talk. You're fascinating to listen to and we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. But I want to get your view on a few other things. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of debate now around England football players taking the knee and there has been during the Euros. Um, and, you know, before that, obviously, throughout the Premier League season as well. But Rugby League is sending its message uh, with this 13 seconds, which sees players support the game's anti-racism message. Um, th- those who are against yeah. those stances argue that, that politics should be kept out of sport. It, it's always been political sport, though, hasn't it? Well, the very creation of Rugby League was political. It was about, you know... A, a sport creating itself out of another sport because of a, a fundamental disagreement about what the sport was. Well, that's it's not party political, that's not Tory or Labour, but a lot of it was about the way that the sport, the, the sport that you were leaving was run, who it was being run for. Well, they're political questions. And it's like, you know, and it, what what gets on my goat on this is the same people who are saying... Uh, that, you know, they shouldn't take the knee. They're the ones who are saying, you know, why wouldn't you wait for let England wear the poppy? You know, it's like people want things to be political when it suits their politics. And, you know, I, I, talked, I, I talked about this to, to, um, to Harry Kane. Um, and I, he was really, really articulate about it, about why he felt as a white guy that it was really important not to stop doing it just because people had stopped talking about the issue that led to it. And I respect that because I've always said in communications, it's, it's not about the big moment, the big hit. It's about how you then kind of take that forward and carry it on. And so I'm, I, I, I'm, I, I support them doing it. I think that I think the argument against it is um, I don't buy it. I'm afraid I don't, I don't buy this idea that they're saying it's about keep trying to keep sport out of politics you know, people said when, when people were boycotting uh, South Africa, they said, oh, well, we shouldn't do that because, you know, it, let, let's keep politics out of sport. But no, because p- sport is part of politics, whether we like it or not. And it's how you then use that. You know, the, 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 and, and sport does have it. Such a, it has such a power to do good. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, I do a lot of work in mental health campaigning. Rugby League has been brilliant on mental health. Uh, you know, at that at that kind of campaigning level, both here and in Australia, you know, the whole state of mind campaign, and you know, th- that's political. You can say, well, that's because we know that rugby players have to be strong psychologically, but them saying we're taking a stance on mental health that is political. 
You're not saying you like a government or you don't like a government, but that is part of politics. Sport is being, you know, a message that we want all kids to be fit. That's political. Look, I mean, I just wonder as well, back when you were in number 10, how, how much you were sort of asked to to spin things and to, to doctor things. I mean, I'm just thinking almost with the, the UK government intervention into the European Super League and how they kind of then use that as some sort of soft power and, and some sort of part of the playbook. Do you, do, you, do you have any sort of recollections of having to get involved with, with sport when you were there? Oh, there were loads. I mean, the big, you know, the big one was when we went for the Olympics. Um, that was a that was a big decision because you know, one you might fail, and everybody thought we would fail. Um, two, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. And likewise, when we went for World Cup bids as well, you know, it's something galling about it. you get these you get these memos from FIFA saying you know, his his Excellency will arrive at so and so, and he must be referred to as as Mr. President and all this sort of crap you know and you know you, you have to give them all these big dinners and all that sort of stuff so yeah that goes on all the time and then there's there's always the discussion about you know when if and when a prime minister or who should go you know go into a big game so like you know i remember euro 96 uh john major the germany game john major sitting there in the front row obviously desperate for England to win because it was like felt like this football's coming home was going to have a political effect and <laughs> I'm sort of sitting there I'm going to be honest here right? I'm sitting there thinking come on Germany <laughs> the <laughs> true Scotsman and I was sitting I was sitting next to I was I was I was sitting next to a, a Scottish special branch guy who was looking after after John Major, and he was he was in the same boat as me, absolutely. But you know, so it, I think we kid ourselves about. I think we we just footballs. Foot, we, I used to get criticised a little bit because <clears throat> I think the one area where maybe I allowed my own views and interests. I was always conscious. Tony was the boss. I was there working for him. But maybe I did. I pushed the football thing and the sports thing very very hard all the time. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you were to if you were to go back through that period and, you know, whenever somebody like Tony was leader of the opposition for three years, prime minister for as long as he was for a decade. Um, but if you go through, like, say, OK, say to a BBC researcher, find five iconic clips of Tony Blair. Right. I guarantee that one of them is the head of the headers with Kelly Keegan. <laughs> You know when he when he when he, when he was when he, and, and that was that was I tell you that was one where a little bit of football knowledge came in handy because everybody else thought it was a terrible idea right in our team because they thought well you know how's he going to be able to keep up with Kevin Keegan Kevin Keegan's like a world class footballer Tony's not played since he was at university and but what I understood is that that is the reason why it was safe to do it because the thing about Kevin Keegan he could. He could head the ball like Tony or I or any of us could throw it, right? Tony could head it as long as he got it you know, within five yards of Kevin Keegan. <laughs> he do all the hard life, work. Kevin Keegan's going to get it back. Yeah, yeah. And he did. Uh, he did twenty. I think it was That's twenty-two. Incredible. That That's always just awesome. reminds me of that scene. Is it in the in the film The Queen where he answers the phone and he's with Sherry and he's got um, 
he's got his Newcastle top on, <laughs> which we touched on at the top. Um, look, Alistair, you... Uh... I'll, tell, I'll, tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story about Newcastle. We had a G8, there was a G7, G8 mm. summit, and we, we were the host. It was in Birmingham. And it was on the day of the cup final. Um, and it was Liverpool against Newcastle. And I said to Tony, uh, listen, I've got Kenny Dalglish's, I, I know where they're staying. I think it'd be good if you sent them a, a note wishing them luck. Da, 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 da. So he sits down and he's got his, and he's head, down his street, headed new notepaper, and he's writing, Dear Kenny, uh, I can't be at the game. I'm chairing the G8 up in, in Western Park in the Midlands, but I'm thinking of you. I'll be watching on the TV as soon as I can get out of this meeting. Blah, 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 blah. All the best, Tony, right? As he's writing this letter, the Japanese Prime Minister comes in, right? Uh, Hashimoto. And he says, uh, so he sort of goes, you know, we're speaking through interpreters, says, what's he doing? And, he t- and we say, oh, he's writing a letter to the manager of Newcastle United in the cup final. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I must do this too. And the interpreter <laughs> says, I must do this too. <laughs> well, and we're like, so, so, so do we explain? No, this is so... <laughs> so somewhere in London, Kenny Dalglish gets this letter in Japanese. <laughs> oh, amazing! <laughs> so, good luck against Liverpool. I love those. I love those stories. That that bit of insight, Alistair, way like just a typical day for you back then must have been fucking mental. And the things that you saw, just walking you know, when you walked through the door at number ten, just the things that went on behind the well, scenes. Well, the other, the other, the other thing. Well, the other thing that happened that day is that Clinton and Chrétien, who was the Canadian Prime Minister, they went for a walk without telling their security guys. And they, they went over, and, and this place was secured, the whole place was secured, but they came to a fence and they went over the fence and didn't, <laughs> didn't realise that they were out of the secure zone. Oh, my word. <laughs> so these, you know, American security guys absolutely go... <laughs> Nuts. You, you mentioned there, you know, being a mental health campaign, yeah. and we've had all sorts of, you know, people on the, the podcast, particularly this this series, this season. Greg Inglis, um, you know, playing at Warrington, talked about his issues in the past, um, and I, I don't know, it's been very public that you had your your issues with depression and you know, issues is a shit word, isn't it? But you had your your history with with depression and, and alcoholism. When, when for people listening that that it could help them, when did that first? come to reality for you uh, well funny enough I had my first warning about drinking when I was about 17 um, I went to the doctor because I had these terrible skin rashes and um, she was sort of looking at it and she said you know can I ask you how much you drink and you know I did what most people do which I sort of oh you know a couple of pints every weekend and uh, and, and actually it had been after a really sort of very, very heavy weekend. And then I went to university and it became, I think I was conscious of it becoming a problem, but I was very high functioning. I was, you know, getting good grades in exams. I was, you know, and then when I became a journalist, um, it really came to a head in 1986 when I had a, I had a complete breakdown. You know, I had a psychotic breakdown, hearing voices, doing crazy stuff, uh, ended up getting arrested ended up um in a you know being committed to a hospital psychiatric place and um and that was that was that was when i really <laughs> you got no choice but to realize you sort of suddenly lying in a bed in a hospital with psychiatrists 
putting you know stuff in you and um so that was a big turning point and it, um, but what happened then was that they advised me to stop drinking which i did i didn't touch drink i didn't touch drink for 13 years and but the depressions kept coming and i realized that actually i never really got on top of the depression the last book i wrote living better was really about how i started to proper de- deal properly with depression after i left number 10 and what i was in 2005 um, I described this in the book. I was out with Fiona, my partner, and I was I started beating myself up physically in the, again in a public place. I was I was punching myself really. I was in I had black eyes. I, you know, I was really and 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 as I was doing it, I was saying to myself, "You cannot do this on your own anymore. You've got to get help." And that's when I, uh, my best friend, sadly he's dead now, but Philip Gould, he said. He'd been nagging me for ages. He said, this depression thing is getting ridiculous. You, you know, the gaps between the bouts were getting shorter and shorter. And he said, look, I see this guy. Why don't, why don't you go and see him? And, and I said, no, 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 I'll be fine. I've always done things my own way. I'll do it my way, et cetera. And I went to see this guy, and, it, and it's been transformational. Um, you know, I still get depression. I've had two or three bad episodes in lockdown, but way, way, way better than it used to be. And I'm just much better now at dealing with it. And how do you manage it, Alistair? How what what do you what do you do to kind of when you're going through a rough patch? How do you kind of manage it and, and get back on your feet? Um, I think I think having been through it quite a lot already is is a big thing. I think telling yourself, even as it happens, the first thing do, I do now is I accept it when it happens. It's really funny this actually. I'm just thinking this talking about rugby because when I in the book I describe what it feels like. And I, say, I actually say that the, um, the ball, it's like a rugby ball. It's like an oval rugby shape, rugby ball shape. It's got a, my depressions have got a, they've got a, I always point up there because it feels like a cloud that's coming towards me. And it's like, a, it's this oval shaped cloud. And it used to be, I used to fight it and say, you know, leave me alone, get away, fuck off, you know. But now what I do is I, I say, oh, God, you know, here we go again. In you come. And the other thing I never used to do is I never told Fiona. Now I tell her straight away, I've got a depression coming on. And that that sense of self-awareness then allows me what I, I've got this thing called my jam jar, where it's all the things that I'm just having. A, it's literally it's, it's, there's a physical jam jar and there's a piece of paper. And it's got all the things that I know will help me get through it. So if I go through them, FFF is the first one. That's Fiona, family, friends, uh, friendships and family, most important. Meaning, meaningful activity, which is both, you know, work to make a living, but also stuff that you want to do because you want to change the world, whether that's politics or mental health campaigning, whatever. And then it's the fundamental sleep diet exercise. I never used to take those seriously. And now I'm fanatical about all three. Um, and then it's the things that matter to me. So, you know, Burnley Football Club would be one of them. Playing the backpipes would be another one. My bike would be another one. My dog would be another one. All these things that matter to me, they're, they're the kind of the very personal things. And then it's the thematic stuff like curiosity. Never go to bed without learning something you didn't know when you woke up. Creativity. I write every day. It might only be a blog or it might be a book. It, it might be a letter, but I write every day. And that, you know, when I'm depressed, writing about it really helps. Um, and what's interesting about that is that if you'd have said to me 
before I the woman I met the woman who told me about this jam jar approach. If you'd have said to me, "How do you deal with your depression like you did now?" I'd have said, "Oh well, I see my I see my psychiatrist and I take medication." But they were they were way down the list when it came to actually working through the things that help me now. So um, yeah, so that's a kind of rough rough guide to how I do it. And and it's you know maybe it's because I'm older, maybe it's because I'm less live a different sort of life. But the since I've since I wrote the book and since I made a I did a film for the BBC about it, the bouts have got shorter and the gaps between them have got longer. And I think it's actually because I've done all that research and all that work mm. on myself. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that you've, you know, you've, you're finally recognising it now and you have this approach in a way and a strategy of dealing with it, but years after your most stressful years, I mean, I imagine when you were that close with Blair, you, was, you were on sort of Margaret Thatcher's sleeps, weren't you, of about three hours a night? Yeah, and, 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 you know, there's a part of me that thinks, <clears throat> you know, see, what I don't want to do, the other thing I do in my campaign on mental health is I don't want anyone to think it's all bad. I think a lot of the good stuff in my life comes from having this, you know, troubled mind, my creativity, my energy. Um, and also, back then, I think I probably was hiding it. Now, that was bad for me, probably. Certainly for my family, but pro but might not have been bad for the job that I was doing at the time that I was doing it in the way that I was doing it, because I'm not recommending this, but I think unless you're a little bit living on the edge, you're not going to work as hard as that. You're not going to be as utterly relentlessly mm. focused. So you know it's not all bad. And, and I, I mean, this years after the psychotic episodes, I don't know if this is an excuse for it, but I've heard you in an interview before say that you had a dream uh, once with uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And Gordon Brown had an axe and was attacking Tony Blair. Can you tell us more about that, please, Alistair? <laughs> no, Gordon, don't do it. <laughs> no, I think, I think it was more about... If I put myself in between them, is the axe going to go in my head? It was like, um, well, the, the only reason I remember that, there was a time when, as part of the therapy I was going through with this David, this psychiatrist that, that I was seeing for several years, was that he made me write down all my dreams. Uh, I'm not going to publish this, but I've got about 900,000 words worth of dreams written wow. away somewhere. And there's this thing you do, you know, there's a state called hypnagogia, which is when you're between waking and sleeping, right? And a lot of the dreams happen when that's going on. And if you're conscious of the fact that during the, your waking hours, you say to yourself, you're going to write down your dreams, it's amazing how much more you remember of your dreams. And so I was waking up, and it's true. Listen, I still have a lot of dreams that are about Tony and Gordon fighting. They are, they, they, I do. It's, it's one of the recurring who, ones. Who, just incidentally, who would you say from a, a burning building, Blair or Brown? Oh, I'd, I'd try and get them both out. I'd definitely try and get them both out. <laughs> the spin doctor sits on the fence. I love it. I love it. Look, it's been... It... No, I, I, look... I'm much closer to Tony, obviously, but no, Gordon's got a lot of... When, when I look at Johnson now and I, I hear Gordon talking about the vaccination programme or the economic consequences or whatever, I think, oh, my God. 
you know, so no, I'd, I'd rescue them both. And look, over this last hour, we've we've put you forward for the job, and I think we're, there was a sort of two three seconds where you might have ruled yourself yeah. out. Can can we can we build on this for the Super League chief exec? I think role? we can work on him. I think he's uh, I think he's in the in the running. Who's in for it? For the minute, <laughs> just you, yeah. <laughs> it's not a big queue. <laughs> yeah, but listen, I'll tell you right. I'll tell you a story about. I got headhunted for a position on the as a non-exec on the SFA, right? I wrote about this in my last mm. volume of diaries. And so they came to me, chief exec came to me and said, we really, really, really want you to do this, right? The guy, chief executive, Stuart Regan, uh, he said, listen, come up, meet the, meet the whole board. And it's just a, you know, it's, it's just a formality, da, 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 da. And then thereafter, that all went fine. And then if I miss a little, this is really a bit embarrassed about this, but we've decided to go a different route. And I reckon it's because I said I was absolutely convinced that a sporting body should be pursuing sponsorship deals that aren't with gambling and uh, alcohol companies. Uh, so that might be a bit of a problem with the Super League. <laughs> I think so. I think there's still a, there's still a way that you can uh, you can wangle your magic some way. Look, Alistair, we've kept you for well over an hour, so thank you so much for for your time. Really fascinating to listen to you. I'd look, we'd love to get you back on again. No, it's all. Let, let me know when it's out, and I'll. And I'll tweet Brilliant. it. And you're the only man that's kept John Wilkin quiet for an hour in the history of rugby league. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, look, thanks everyone for listening to uh, to Out of Your League. We'll have a new episode, as we always do, for you every week um, to download from wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube or Chalister on YouTube as well. And don't forget to give us a little follow on at Out of Your RL on Twitter. Alistair, thank you very much. See you next week, everyone. <laughs>